Hey, Andy Clark here, and welcome to Season 3 of the Here in Holland podcast. My guest for this edition is Gordon Darrick. He came to the Netherlands under extraordinary circumstances and has written a book about his experience. It's a moving story of love and loss and what comes after. When the world collapses, it is not with a great blast of energy like a tsunami or a fireworks display. It simply crumbles into dust. I discovered this brutal truth on my 38th birthday, when I sat with my wife in a small whitewashed room and her descendants had dispatched us to the worst place in the universe. Within a couple of days, Machtelt might have passed for a healthy person again. The reddish stain bestowed by chemotherapy had faded from her skin, she resumed her daily walks, and her hair seemed as sturdy as ever, so lush and firmly rooted that it was hard to imagine her deserted scalp. I lay in bed inspecting her and looking for the first signs of it working loose. Her custom-made wig sat in a box on top of the chest of drawers, awaiting its debut. The next Saturday night she stood in the bathroom, pulling out clumps of dead hair as if it were candy floss. I'm like an autumn tree, she said, as she watched her disintegration in the mirror. It's oddly satisfying. The sides receded first, then the top, and finally the fringe. She concealed the effect for another week by wearing a hat, and consoled herself in the meantime by shopping for headscarves on the internet. Eventually it was down to a few pale, wispy scraps, like a baby owl in spring, she said. Impatiently, she took the hair clippers from the drawer and prepared to excise the last stubborn follicles. Let me do it for you, I said. I ran the razor over her head until only a soft coating of stubble remained. It sharpened the outline of her face and helped the headscarves fit better. Uh, you know, she was obviously very anxious about losing her hair and things, so it was kind of a moment when, um, in a sort of perverse kind of way, you know, um, I hesitate to say that cancer brought us close together, but, you know, a, a, a sort of an intimate moment, I suppose you could call it. The first thing was it was completely unexpected. I mean, Machtel was 36 years old. She was very, very healthy. She'd, um, you know, she, she went running. She hadn't, uh, she hadn't smoked. She, you know, we, we, uh, she did drink, but not heavily. And, you know, she had a very healthy lifestyle. And there was almost no um, history of cancer in her family either. So she was about the lowest risk that you could possibly be. And all of a sudden, she she found a lump in her breast, and she went to the GP. And they said it's probably it looks like it's just a cyst, but we'll just you know we'll we'll refer you to the um uh, uh to the hospital to to be sure. Um, and they said more or less the same thing. And then and then one day it came back. Um, and it happened to be um uh, my thirty eighth birthday that um uh, that that we had this bombshell news that she had breast cancer and that she, you know we needed to put everything on hold for. And they warned us at the time it'll take at least a year to have the treatment and get over it. And, you know, you've got to put every any other plans you have, you've just got to take a back seat to that. So this is the moment uh, when it's the day that Muckle's been diagnosed with the cancer and we come home and she's got to start ringing around her family with the bad news. The phone calls began as soon as we got back from the hospital. In Dutch, kanker is one of the ugliest words in the lexicon, the common root of its most venomous swear words. It sounds harsher than its English equivalent a pair of plosives to be spat out like rotten teeth. I'd called off work so I could sit in the kitchen and hear my wife speak it again and again, in between shrieks of despair, as she relayed the news to her family. Nobody knew what to say. The callers expected inconvenient news at worst. Miss Winter had told us that even the consultants were surprised by the results. In the consultation room, Muttled had turned to me, her eyes filled with tears, 
and tried a light remark. This isn't quite what we planned for your birthday. Jennifer said, Oh, is it your birthday? Until then I'd sat quietly, numb with shock, but now the tears streamed from my eyes. This was when I understood that this diagnosis wasn't just for Machtelt. It would disrupt my own life, our children's, and those of her family across the sea, in ways that we'd barely begun to understand. The treatment would take a year, and give us back the shattered pieces of our lives, if we were lucky. A year in hell, as if the plague sign had been painted on our door. And we just sat there doing this round of phone calls. It was mainly her, to be honest. Um, and then afterwards, I think we just sat out in the garden. It was a lot. I've seen, I remember it was you know just quite a ni- nice, bright, sunny afternoon. And we just sat there, just 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 absolutely floored, just devastated. And Michael sat there and said, you know, yeah, I, I still can't really believe that I've got a deadly disease when I'm a you know, healthy person. You know, she looked at herself, and you know, it was it was trying to. It's just trying to make sense of that, that, you know, that, that you're, you're in your mid-30s and you feel perfectly healthy, you look perfectly healthy, and yet, you know, you've got something inside you that is possibly going to kill you. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, she started the chemotherapy treatment. So, yeah, your whole world is transformed and suddenly you're on you're on this train. You're like, you know, you're almost, you're th- you're almost thrown into the train and you, you just have to let it um, take you along and, you, and, and try and catch up with what's happening and make sense of it along the way. Well, after chemotherapy, she was very sick, which she tended to be. I mean, the side effects were quite um, came on quite violently. You know, after the first one, everything was she was okay for about I think four or five hours, and you know, she went to pick up the boys from school. I think made a cup of tea, cooked supper, and then all of a sudden it, it just hit her. Literally, just sort of, you know, she had the first kind of round of sickness, and that went on right through the night. So she was very. Yeah, obviously she, she was. It was very draining. It's very exhausting having to get you know, uh, all the kind of uh, because they're, li- they're literally just pumping poison into your uh, through your bloodstream. Effectively, that, that's how it works. Um, so that was very tiring and exhausting. She was in bed for uh, a day or two afterwards, and then she would gradually recover and come and, and pick herself up and um, and sort of challenge herself to keep going. Go out to the shops. Go out for a walk. Um, and you know, um, and uh, yeah, gradually regain her strength, and then of course, uh, three weeks later, she'd be back at the hospital for the next round, and it did gradually. You could see at the same time there was you know, that, that that she was gradually getting weaker, and you know she was. You could see it in the way she walked. You could see it in you know, the fact that she couldn't, um, you know, um, carry the bags back from the shop uh, or whatever. Uh, and uh, we actually tried to walk up. Um, to the hospital, which was about um, three quarters of a mile away from the house, as long as the weather was reasonably good. Um, and uh, I noticed that uh, along the way there was quite a steep hill. Um, and by about the fourth session, she she had to stop at least twice on the way up the hill before she got to the top. And yet, a couple of months earlier, she she was running up that hill as part of her regular her regular running route. And what was this doing to you at the time? Yeah, obviously for me it was ex- you know, it was extremely stressful. And um, apart from anything, obviously I had to take on a lot more of the caring duties for the boys. But I also had to kind of carry on being the breadwinner. So you know, I was I was working, but part time, um, and I had to cut back my hours so I had more time uh, to look after her. And it's really draining. In, in it's also the other thing is it's just really quite isolating. You know, there, there's no you, you can't hide from it. You know, you can't like take a day off. It's a permanent round the clock. 
24-hour thing. Um, and Machtrup was clearly, she was very tired. She was also very anxious because, you know, she didn't know how the treatment was going to go. Um, she could see as well that um, although they were giving her this very intensive chemotherapy, the tumor wasn't actually shrinking at all. So that made her worry. And all sorts of things like it was the middle of autumn. So she was worried about getting ill. Um, she went to the doctor one time. The doctor warned her that her white blood cell count had fallen quite severely in winter, you know, uh, to try not to get an infection. Of course, it's November, so there's flu going around. It's cold. It's wet. We lived in Glasgow, and and that know, could that could have been <coughs> that could have been deadly. That potentially it could be. Well, what, what they said was, if you get any kind of, you know, if you feel any kind of illness coming on, go straight to A and E. Don't go to the doctor. And that sort of that, all that kind of advice, you know, rams home just how frail and fragile you are in that situation. And that obviously is very is a very difficult thing to to live with. And you have two boys as well. Yeah. They have autism, so that yes. was an added... And what was that like? Well, exactly, because we had to explain it to them. I mean, explain... And at the time, Adam was seven years old and Ewan was nine. Um, so we had to find a way to explain it to them um, that uh, the, the mum was very sick um, uh, and uh, obviously, it was a big change to their routine, and that's always a challenge for autistic children. You know, the fact that um, uh, you know, the, even just things like we had to change uh, the routine for taking them to school in the morning and picking them up in the afternoon. I had to do it more often. And the other thing was that they could really sense um, that she was very ill, and they were worried about her, but they couldn't really communicate it. And um, what we noticed was that um, uh, I mean, my, my younger boy, particularly um, Adam, he he suddenly became very clingy uh, towards her. He, he was very he just wouldn't he literally. One one morning, she took him up to school, and he wouldn't let go. And he could clearly he clearly sensed that something was wrong, but he couldn't communicate it. And in the end, we, we I think we had to muscle actually solved it by sort of, um, sitting down with him and one of his teddies and asking the teddy to explain why Adam was worried. And that and then he said, "I'm worried because you're because you look like a different mum." And that's because that was just. At the point she was losing, she was losing her hair. So even the, even that, even the physical changes in her that they could see, that made them, you know, um, that was difficult for them because they could see that, you know, that that she didn't have any hair and she was, you know, she was thinner, she was frailer, and all the rest of it. Um, and try, finding ways to explain that to them and to try and, you know, not make them feel overwhelmed or uh, by the whole thing, uh, yeah, that that was a constant challenge. So you were just coming to terms with the autism, and then the the cancer came along, and then that's kind of yeah added to the. Yeah. difficulties you already had in the family although yeah it was another challenge on top of all the other ones i mean we'd had the we'd had the autism diagnosis two or three years before so we just kind of really adjusted to that and that was one of the main motivations we had for wanting to move to the netherlands and then the cancer came along so yeah it was constantly just one thing on top of another and uh, yeah we were just getting on top of the autism and uh, and then we had to deal with um, cancer treatment as well at the same time there's a fragment from the book where you say, uh, write about autism. Maybe you could read this short fragment. Everyone with an autistic child knows this story. You're queuing at the supermarket checkout or waiting to be served in a restaurant or on a packed train, and your son or daughter is being driven to distraction by the noise, by the cacophony of faces, by the rattle of the carriages or the passing crockery or the squeaking trolley wheels. They pull you by the arm, scream, run up and down, screw up their faces in confusion and alarm. People start to stare and nudge each other until someone says, just loud enough for you to hear, parents these days have no control, eliciting a round of quiet nods. 
yeah, the, the, the thing about the autism, again, it's one of those things that just completely changes the way you, you look at your life and the world around you. Uh, because suddenly you're, you think your children are on one path um, and everything is quite straightforward and they're going, to, you know, they're going to go to school and then go to university and leave home and have jobs. And all of a sudden you find they're on a completely different path or not really on the path at all. You kind of sort of take different sort of byways through the woods or whatever, however you want to phrase it. So, you've, yeah, you've just kind of got your head around that and you get a lot of um support and feedback from people who know about autism um and you know and that in itself initially is is devastating because you know it looks as if your world's caved in and your children is you have the worst you fear the worst really for your children and as they get older and they develop you start to see that there are still actually you know um opportunities for them and that you know uh, and it's not as bad as you first feared we were just really kind of getting back on track from from the initial blow of the autism diagnosis and kind of, and starting to make to understand that when the cancer came along and then of course you know we still had the fact that the boys were autistic and you have to really i guess with autistic children you, you often you have to kind of you, you're constantly improvising you're finding ways to kind of uh, explain the world to them and then the fact that their mum's extremely ill and and she might not survive and trying to explain that to them yeah it, it, it's an enormous enormous challenge and you write in the book that you almost broke up with your wife. Yeah, no, because once, of this, this the, the the piles of the pressure on the on the pair of you. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was the stress that came onto us. I mean, the, th- the thing is, yeah, people say sometimes that autism breaks marriages, and I don't think it's the autism as such, but it's kind of it, it's the effect and it's how you deal with it. I think what it ha- what happens often is it it kind of exp- it's a real test of your relationship, basically, and um, it, it really strains it to breaking point, and either you. Um, either you can deal with it um, or you can't um, and yeah we almost broke up because you know um, the initial thing was uh, you know the, first of all we, we felt like we, we couldn't cope we felt like kind of we, we, we were kind of uh, we were kind of drowning we, we had this thing thrown at us that we weren't uh, weren't able to deal with and also we kind of blamed each other um, and yeah I mean there was a lot of stress and anxiety from both of us and actually it affected the way that we communicated um, between the two of us um, it really I think that was the biggest problem of all that we couldn't you know we both had different ideas of how to um, how to tackle and deal with our children's autism but we weren't really on the same wavelength and that caused a lot of friction um, and it was only really when we got to the point of almost breaking up and uh, literally to the point where I almost started to make plans in my head for what we we're going to do after the divorce um, that we then actually sat down and started to make a plan. And part of the plan was to move over here um, and to get close to her family. And once we actually started to do that and started to, you know, um, accept that this was for life, you know, this, this is the thing that we needed to, we needed to tackle head on and take control of. Um, that was the point when, you know, um, you know, when our marriage, uh, when we kind of saved our marriage, not to sap, we actually learned a lot more about each other as people. And then the cancer came along in the meantime, and then mm. you had the initial treatment was happening, and then things seemed to get better. She had the initial treatment, went through the chemotherapy, and then um, uh, the mastectomy, so she had a breast removed. Um, and then by the spring, it was finished, and obviously she needed a bit of recovery time. Um, and it seemed to be getting better, um, and things started to look a bit more hopeful, and uh, she recovered her strength. Um, we went on a holiday uh, with um, uh, my sister-in-law, with Muttle's sister and her family. Um, uh, we, went to, we went to Denmark and went to Legoland with the children. It was very nice. And, yeah, we could start to think that life is going to be normal again. Um, and that was a really, you know, 
Um, and, and that was the point at which we then said, right, we don't want to uh, wait around uh, with moving uh, abroad because, you know, if the cancer comes back, we want it to be at a point when, you know, we've got everything settled and the children set up in Dutch schools. And if Martel needs more help from her family, they'll be they'll be close by. And um, you, fi- you fixed the date then to move to the Netherlands? Yeah, well, we, I mean, we put the house on the market. That was a big move, uh, the, the, the thing that we did, obviously. And we couldn't really fix the date to move until we'd sold the house. So um, we, we put it up for sale in August and then just sort of hoped that we could um, we could move by, say, Christmas. Um, um, uh, and then that uh, didn't happen. It dragged on a bit. It took a little while to sell. But in the meantime, Muttelt uh, went for her first um, checkup. Uh, so you, you have six months checkups with cancer. And uh, that was clear. So she was told, you're okay, and come back in six months' time. And, yeah, that was the moment when we kind of thought, right, we, we, we've, uh, okay, you're it's aware that... It's all over, it, it's behind you. Yeah, it's not quite all over. You're always aware that, you you know, you, you get continuous six-month checkups for a reason. It can come back at any time. But once you give that, you think you've got the breathing space. You say, okay, we don't have to worry for another six months. We'll be, you know, we've been, and, and that made us feel like we had the time to get the move on. But it, that wasn't to be the case no because um, actually I think within a couple of weeks Martel started to develop quite a kind of nasty hacking cough and uh, obviously yeah, that, that was an early warning sign um, and that turned out to be the cancer coming back um, which, uh, which she discovered um, she, she, she put it off for a while and I think there were reasons for that um, but she, uh, in January she went to the GP and we'd actually just sold the house literally the week before and she got the news back from the GP that the cough which and by this time actually she was coughing up blood the cough was um was the cancer had returned and had spread to her lungs okay and that was and, and that was the point at which yeah and she was told you know this is a secondary cancer and a secondary cancer is a cancer you can't recover from basically if it comes back in a different part of the body then you know they can buy you some time but you know they can't cure it so that was the point she was told she was terminally ill and what what did you do then yeah, um, well, again, it was just another devastating blow, obviously. But um, I think the first thing we did, and I think I remember the, um, that evening, you know, we, we sat there, obviously went home, cried a bit, thought about what we were going to tell the boys. And I think quite early on that evening, uh, I think I said to her, I said, but we're still going to do this move, aren't we? And uh, she said, yes. And I think she needed to hear that and I needed to kind of say it as well because we got past the point of no return I think we got we sold the house and also we'd started to make inquiries about schools for the children we told the children we were moving and with their autism you know to suddenly now reverse and double back at this point I think would have made you know, it would have been an impossible situation and also suddenly we were in, again we were in a completely new phase of life you know we've been thrust into this whole new area where suddenly it wasn't just about starting a new life in the netherlands it was about trying to sort out the last the end of martel's life and one of the things we really realized was that she wanted to spend as much time as she could with her family and that meant that we needed to get get on with the move you're listening to the here in holland podcast with me andy clark my guest is gordon darrick and we're talking about his book all the time we thought we had More from Gordon in just a second, but just a reminder you can find more Here in Holland podcasts in all good apps. So if you haven't subscribed, then now's your chance. And you can become a sponsor of the show too. Details in the show notes and at the end of the podcast. It was still raining as the taxi pulled up outside the door. I wheeled her up, over the ramp and backwards through the front door. 
affording her a last look at the house as she retreated down the pathway. The driver wheeled her up the ramp and strapped her in. As she cast one last glance at her former home, with its teeming hive of memories, I clutched her limp arms and pressed my lips tightly against hers. As the doors slid shut, I thought, this kiss will be separated from the next by eight days and several hundred miles of cold, churning water. Then the driver pulled away, and the taxi dissolved into the black rain until only its red lights, hovering above the roadway, remained. This is the moment when, um, basically, she's leaving for the airport with her mother in a taxi, and we know that, um, uh, alive by now, arranged to take the boys over the next week, but we're not going to see her, basically, for another week, at the point when, obviously, she's terminally ill and going downhill quite rapidly. The thing I remember when I look back was that there was never really any we always had the sense that, there, that we would have time to get this done we never really felt that there was a rush or that we were suddenly in a sudden panic uh, you know everything seemed to happen in quite an orderly way and it was only really when I looked back that I realized how quickly things had moved actually and how fast the speed of her decline was almost you know almost precarious and and how were the boys coping with it at this stage I think the thing was they were actually coping reasonably well and mainly because I was quite careful to just keep their routine as normal as possible. So, for example, I mean, my older son would go off to um, uh, a respite weekend every three weeks and we made sure that kept going and just getting them off to school, um, serving meals and keeping things as, as normal as possible. I mean, they were aware because after she was um, diagnosed as terminally ill, we sat down with them around the kitchen table and we told them that that she was not going to be around for much longer. Now, I know some some parents don't tell their children, but we felt like we needed to involve them, we needed to tell them. And um, Adam just um, looked up and said, uh, but you're here now, mum. And I think for them, that was what mattered, that you know, the here and now was much more important to them than what might or might not be happening in the future. And a move to a new country with kids in tow is difficult at the best of times, yeah. but with all of this going on. And, and you kind of got involved with Dutch bureaucracy as well, of trying to register and trying to get yeah. that kind of technical stuff sorted out. Yeah. How did you deal with that? Yeah, well, it definitely wasn't the best of times. And obviously not just the bureaucracy we had to deal with, but it also had to, you know, we had to find a hospital. We had to sort out um, um, health insurance. Uh, yeah, there was an awful lot to deal with right right from the word go. Um, and yeah, it was just a case of plowing through it, really. And yeah, there was some there were some difficult times. I mean, I remember I went to register um, uh, with Machtelt, um, uh to uh, at the um, at the city hall in the Hague, and uh, there was a lot of building work going on in the Hague at the time. The whole city centre was being turned upside down, and obviously, when you're in a wheelchair traveling on the tram, that's quite difficult. So we ended up being 15 minutes late, and the woman at the desk tried to turn us away. And I kind of um, I put my foot down. I said, no, we've come in here. This woman's terminally ill in a wheelchair. We're registering now. And yeah, thankfully, my Dutch was good enough to get the point across because Muttle was there, but she was sort of down below the level of the of the counter. So I had to kind of handle this. Um, so, yeah, there were a few testing moments like that. And it was just a case of, I think I sort of became, yeah, I sort of channeled Muttle a bit, I think. I think I became quite sort of Dutch and direct in my approach and because that was the, yeah, that was the only way to deal with it, really. There wasn't the time to mess around and, you know, sort of be British and make your excuses and say sorry and walk away. You know, you just had to deal with things head on. The word hospice was as sharp and heavy as a guillotine blade. This was not how Muttled had planned her exit, but there was no alternative. I looked at the Jacobs Hospice website with her, a procession of soothing slow-motion videos, 
with graceful images and a rocking chair voiceover. Muttelt wept as she watched it. It's all old guys, she said, seething again at the way she'd been catapulted into life's final phase, dependent on others to move, dress, wash and feed herself, and with oblivion on the horizon. We just bought the house, but the house needed some um, uh, some work done. So we felt we couldn't get her to move into the house when there were builders around and builders dust and all the rest of it. Um, so her sister-in-law had to actually find a hospice for her to move into, um, which she did within, within a few days. Again, this is one of those things that we had to do. We had to suddenly change our plans and do things uh, quickly, and yet you know we made it work. Um, so they found, she found a hospice in the in, in the centre of the Hague, and when she got off the plane, that was where that was the place she moved into. In Machtel's last week, we were consciously living in hell, but it was a hell that she had shaped and furnished, and that was oddly comforting. The sense of pain and discomfort was imprinted in every step. Simple tasks such as tying shoelaces became aggravating trials. And all the time we knew that the trajectory of her demise could nosedive at any moment. Most people learned to cope with this process over decades, but for Machtelt it was compressed into a few months. The very end, the very last phase, uh, actually came on quite suddenly. Again, we, we, we'd had um, um, we'd, we'd had my son Ewan's birthday the weekend before, and we'd been at home. And Muttle had started to feel um, very tired and have trouble breathing. Um, but then on the Monday morning, um, she couldn't breathe at all. She's completely clogged up, um, and she needed to go into hospital. Um, and uh, the doctors found that uh, her lungs were completely filled with fluid, and she needed to. Uh, and go on to a respirator but it was only really after lunch that it became clear that she wasn't going to make it so it was almost it sounds strange given that she was she, she was turned she'd be terminally ill for several weeks but it was actually quite unexpected that she died right at that particular moment um and then suddenly we had to scramble things together i'd actually um asked my um, my father-in-law to take ewan back to the house because i thought he needed a break i could see that he was getting quite ag- agitated and anxious and you know just being in the hospital was quite difficult for him as an autistic boy so i asked my father-in-law to take him home and then i think about a quarter of an hour after that, I went into the room where Muscle was lying, and I saw that she was uh, she was almost gone. So I had to scramble for my father-in-law to scramble, uh, scramble him to get back to bring him back to the house because Muscle's last wish, and she said this repeatedly, that she wanted to die with the three of us and around her bedside and nobody else. So it was really crucial to me that Ewan was with us at that moment. And um, yeah, so then um, it was literally a race against time to get him to her bedside before she drew her last breath. That was the scene that she'd set out. Uh, you know, that, that was her, literally her dying wish. You know, she, she kind of crafted this um, bedside scene, although she wanted it to be in her own house. And unfortunately, yeah, sadly, that wasn't possible. It had to be in the hospital. But yeah, to me, it was all it was all consuming, really. It was absolutely essential to have the boys with us at the time. I don't know how important it was for the boys. I think looking back, I think it was good that they were there and that she saw saw it happen although it's a terrible dreadful thing to happen i think it's easier for them to deal with if they've actually been present than if you try to take them into a side room and explain afterwards in the early stages you're kind of numb really you're so i mean you're i mean actually in the first couple of weeks you almost can't believe it's happened you know because your memories of the person are so fresh in your head you know you can, you can still you can remember going to the shops of them three days ago you think how can that person be dead that's ridiculous so it comes on quite uh, gradually um and actually i think that the first 
um, the first six months were kind of, um, although I felt the loss very keenly and I was, you know, I was waking up crying and all that kind of thing. Um, I could, you know, I could just sort of drift along a bit on the surface. The real sort of deep raw grief came later when you actually, your brain gradually adjusts to the fact that this is permanent and that person's really gone. And, you know, you feel kind of all the, you know, the bitterness and the, yeah, and the loneliness and regret. But it's, and actually, I think it was, it took about, I think about three years altogether to and not even get over it you don't really get over it but just to adjust to it and accept it as part of your life and think about you know um getting on with things there's a uh, very moving passage which i ask you to, to read from towards the end of the book when you're talking about a friend and, and some of the remarks the friend gave to you about the time you'd spent together with Machtold. yeah after Machtelt died, a friend remarked that I'd been lucky to experience true love at least once in my life. That was both a comforting thought and a troubling one. Machtelt and I didn't have an idyllic marriage, but we enjoyed spells of true intimacy. Intimacy really is the capacity to share the awkward sides of ourselves, the parts we keep out of the social media realm. It's the ability to tell someone we love them without obligation or shame. Machtelt and I said it a lot in the last months. In the hospice, every time I pushed her into the lift and the door closed behind us, in bed together, after I'd arranged her pillows and helped administer her medicine before collapsing, exhausted by her side. At the dinner table, when she looked up from her iPad, drifting in and out of deep thought, and gave me a fragile smile. At the same time, I worried that her impending demise had pressed us into a false, exaggerated pastiche of intimacy. Perhaps what brought us closer in those days was not love, but pity, regret and the loss of hope. Were we coerced by the sense of the lights going out and the vortex closing? Or did we really mean it this time? And if so, why had we been so neglectful, when opportunities were abundant, to look into each other's eyes and say, without constraint or inhibition, I love you? One of the things I really wanted to um, bring home with this book was that, you know, to, to me, grief is, is a healing process, but it's it's really hard, it's really difficult, and it's, uh, you know, you wouldn't wish it on people. But it's a thing that everybody goes through at some stage in their life, and I happen to have gone through it, you know, much earlier than I'd expected to. Um, but it, it is a way of coming to terms with something devastating um, that you have no control over. Um, and it, you know, it makes you think and reflect. And I think it makes you just, um, or has made me just really think about very hard about, you know, what are the real, what do you really want to get out of life? What are the real priorities? And what memories do you want to leave behind? Um, you know, because I think, um, uh, the, the, you know, when I reflect on, yeah, my relationship with uh, uh, my relationship, with my marriage to Machtelt, you know, it, it wasn't perfect. You know, it, it, there were really hard times. We had rows, and we had moments when we really couldn't stand the sight of each other. And yet, you know, as, as a whole, it was a very, you know, I felt really privileged to have known her and to have been with her uh, for those years. And at the end of the book, you you write a letter, uh, you know, several years after. Magdal's death mm. uh, why did you do that yeah well, it's the thing when we first uh, went out together she lived she used to lived in uh, in Drenthe that's where she um, where she grew up um, and I was studying in Edinburgh so uh, we kept in touch by letter we sort of actually our relationships were started um, as pen pals almost okay we met on holiday and um, had a sort of very sort of you know a sweet innocent holiday romance for a couple of days and I sort of thought I'd never see her again when she when she left the campsite um, and then we, the way we yeah got to know each other was by writing lessons to each other. So it's, it seemed, 
after she died and um uh, uh, that was really the um one of the ways I dealt with the grief was um I started writing her letters again even though you know uh, just really because you know we talked a lot um in the weeks and the months before she died when she knew she was dying you know about what the future would be like and she she'd actually said to me at one point you know I want you to be happy I want you to you know you deserve to be loved which was I was amazed you know that there she was dying you think that somebody in that situation would just be consumed with anxiety about their own situation and yet she was worried about me I think that's quite a natural thing actually when you're dying that's a big thing I learned that she was worried about me and worried about the boys um, so I started writing her letters about how things were going, you know, because that sort of reassured me within myself, you know, that, uh, and that could make me think, it was a way, it was a way for me really to think about, you know, what was the life we were leading, you know, um, the one that, uh, she wanted for us. Yeah. And, and maybe you could just read the beginning of the, the, the letter, which is at the end of the book. Yeah. Darling Machtelt, more than a year has passed since you left us and a lot has happened in that time. What would you think of us, I often wonder, if you could visit us for a day? You would marvel at your children, heading off to school on their bikes, packed lunches and homeworks tucked into their bags. You could fetch Adam at lunchtime. He'll break away from his friends and come running towards you, shouting with joy, and you will wonder if it can really be the same boy who was so quiet and withdrawn in the playground in Glasgow. And how are things now then? How are things with you and with with your boys? Well, now I'm a I'm a single father, and that's challenging in itself. Uh, quite apart from you know the the circumstances in which it happened. Um, so yeah, things are very busy. Um, I've uh, I'm now working uh, as a journalist, and I sort of I work freelance because I kind of have to really. I don't really have the kind of um, uh, daily routine that fits with a nine to five job. Uh, so yeah, um, I had to find, I had to pick up some work after Michael died, um, and gradually that's uh, uh, yeah, I've, I've man- yeah, managed to find enough to keep going. And you know, we have a life here now, and I think yeah, I can't imagine it being any different. The boys are settled into schools, um, and uh, you know we have a, a daily routine. We feel very settled in the Netherlands. We all still feel the loss of Michael quite de- very deeply, but we've come to terms with it. You know, it's it, we are now. Yeah, we, we thought we were going to move here as as a kind of mixed couple, you know, um, uh, Michael being Dutch and, uh, and and me being from the UK, and our children uh, being sort of uh, cross cultural, if you like. In the end, we're now an expat family by by accident almost. So that's changed our perspective as well. Um, but yeah, but that's the way it goes, and I think we've we've accepted that that's that's how it's going to be. And what do you hope uh, the book? will do will achieve will mean for other people will for mean for people who read it well i guess i suppose it's um yeah it, it, it will um connect with um uh, a lot of people either because they've been through a similar experience with cancer or with autism or with emigration you know it, it, it i suppose it, it takes a lot of those boxes but i hope as well it's a it's a book that um you know um i wouldn't like to think when it was going around the rounds of publishers a few people um, the publishers rejected it, said they uh, that the, the, they kind of found it uh, uh, unbearably sad, which uh, I found it quite hard to take because I've written it quite consciously to make it kind of bearably sad. You know, there was the, there is hopefully, as you say, it's a love story, but also there's, there was a kind of through all that time that Martel was going through cancer treatment and dying, uh, there was always a sense of hope. We always felt like you know there, there was something to look out for and to live for, and I think that's. 
the thing that I wanted to bring out in the book that you know you're always making plans and you know and and even when things get circumstances get desperate you know you 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 can always have um something to hang on to and something to look forward to um and it was a very you know uh, a stressful time but also a very precious time and in some ways yeah, as I said at the beginning, you know, cancer, although you wouldn't wish it on anybody, it did kind of bring us together and made us more kind of intimate as a couple in some ways and actually, you know, value, you know, what was, um, you know, understand what's, what was really important about, you know, relationships with other people. Um, and that's so often overlooked, I think, you know, the book's called All the Time We Think We Had. And one of the reasons for that is, Often when I look back over the earlier phase of our marriage when everything was kind of seemed to be going well and we were healthy, you know, the amount of time you could have spent like, you know, arguing about taking the bins out and all that kind of thing. I sort of think, you know, if only we'd use that time better, you know, I think that, that's one thing, you know, it's, that sort of awareness of your own impending mortality is something you push away into the background often and you let trivial things come to the fore. And I think sometimes you, it's... Uh, Hopefully, I think people who read this book will just, it'll make them just look across at the person they're with and encourage them to think about, you know, what it is, why that person is meaningful and important to them. Gordon Durack talking about his book all the time we thought we had. It's an amazingly honest book, and I think he's really brave for writing it. It's certainly worth reading on so many levels. It's available via Amazon, and there's a link in the show notes. Thank you, Gordon, for coming to the studio and talking so openly about your experiences, which brought you to the Netherlands. Gordon also has a blog on autism. Uh, It's called Autistic Dad, and there's a link to that in the show notes as well. So, dear listeners, that's it for podcast one of season three. I'm amazed I've got to season three. I love making the podcast, as you know. Um, Please get in touch with me. I love that too. And let me know what you think about the show. And tell your family and friends too. Spread the word. The more people who know about here in Holland, the better. And don't forget, if you really want to support me, you can become a patron, a sponsor. You can do it from just €2.50 a month, the price of a kind of average cup of coffee, I would say. And the more patrons I have, the more shows I can make. There's a link in the show notes on how to do this and on the website hereinholland.com. All the podcasts to date are there too. All right, from me, Andy Clark, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time.